Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, my friends? Welcome back to the Speaker Lab Podcast. Grant Baldwin here. Really do appreciate you hanging out with us. Hope you're having a great day. All right, we've got another great guest for you today. We're trying to just line up just awesome, killer guests after guests after guests. We're trying to really just bring you some top-notch people that can really help you move the needle in your speaking business. So whether you are brand new or you've been at this for years or wherever you are in your speaking journey, I think you're really going to enjoy today's guest. Now, before we get to that, let me remind you, if you haven't stopped by already, make sure you check out freespeakerworkshop.com, freespeakerworkshop.com. This is a uh, an online training that we do on a daily basis, just teaching you exactly how to find and book paid speaking engagement. So we'd love for you to register for that. Check that out again. It's totally free. Check it out again over at freespeakerworkshop.com, freespeakerworkshop.com. Com. All right, so let's get to today's guest. Today we are talking with Patrick Henry, and Patrick is a speaker that I've known for uh, actually nearly a, a decade now. We actually got started at a similar time and working with a similar organization. You're going to hear a little bit of that story today. And Patrick is a uh, is a guy who's gone on to speak at some amazing conferences and events all over the world. Actually, we start by talking about he has a very common name, Patrick Henry. So his website is actually patrickhenryspeaker.com. So we talk about how do you pick a URL, pick a website domain when you have a really common name. Uh, we also talk about the importance of wording when positioning yourself. So positioning yourself as a a speaker versus a comedian, or a humorist versus a comedian, or a speaker versus a musician. So we we talk through that today. We talk about how he incorporates music into his speaking. It's definitely something that differentiates him from the crowd. And we also talk about how he networks with other speakers and how he shares referrals with other speakers. Building relationships with other speakers is one of the best ways to advance in the speaking business and how to build and grow your speaking business. So he talks through how he has done that over the years. So a lot of great insights that uh, you're going to pick up today from Patrick Henry. So let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with my buddy, Patrick Henry. Enjoy. What's up, my friends? Today, I'm hanging out with my buddy, Patrick Henry, who uh, we actually came across each other maybe a decade ago when we both had no clue what we were doing. We have a little bit more of a clue now, not much of it, but uh, Patrick has been a, a phenomenal speaker and a great dude and so excited to uh, be hanging out with him today. So, Patrick, what's up, man? How are you? I'm great. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Appreciate you hanging out with us. So, hey, I got a question for you. I get this question a lot from speakers. I was just noticing on your site, you have patrickhenryspeaker.com. Now, I'm guessing that there's other Patrick Henrys in the world who have taken yeah, a patrickhenry.com. The revolutionary kind of stole my SEO. <laughs> I have to always tell people, put speaker, humorist, anything after my name that would identify me to find me. Okay. Otherwise, you're getting the give me liberty or give me death. <laughs> yeah. Cause I was curious about that. Cause there's certainly a lot of speakers who, you know, my name's John Doe and I can't get the domain. So what do I need to do at that point? So how did you land on putting speaker after versus 
before or any other variations that you could do or going with a .org or anything else? Or did you give much thought to that? I wish I could say it was a very thought out process, but my web designer <laughs> said back when we the first website, you were patrickhenryspeaker.com. And I said, okay. <laughs> but now I have patrickhenryspeaks.com and I'll all lead to the same site. Lots so, of variations. Yes. Nice. All right, let's backtrack a little bit. How did you first get into uh, to speaking? What made you interested in speaking and how'd you dive in? My dad was a speaker. And so I grew up in the business. I, I grew up understanding that there was a meetings industry. And so I got to know as a result of having a father in the business, I got to know a lot of his speaking buddies. And so it was not uncommon to have people like Zig Ziglar or Les Brown staying at the house. That's crazy. Uh, I remember hearing so, that now. Yeah, yeah. And so it was interesting at the time. I just knew him as, as my, my dad's buddies, but I never really aspired to be a speaker. But when I moved to Nashville, and we can talk about how that happened, it made the transition into speaking very real because I already understood that there was an industry and I could point my compass in that direction. A lot of people fall into this business. Yeah. Once I realized I wasn't becoming the next Garth Brooks, I turned my ship in that direction. Right. So once you decide to make that pivot, did you feel like, I saw my dad do this, it's the path of least resistance, and so I'll just go down that path? Or are you thinking, you know, speaking is something that I still feel like I'm good at and I can incorporate music into it? Or what was that kind of transition like? Yeah, I was like everybody else. Oh, speaking's easy. <laughs> Little did I know. I'm a musician at heart. I'm a humorist at heart. I mean, I can remember, you know, looking back, I didn't realize at the time it was preparing what bring me for what I do now, but I can remember being in the fraternity house in college and playing funny songs, making people laugh. When I moved to Nashville, you know, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a songwriter and an artist. And, and so I used to play at a little place called the Bluebird Cafe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and that's when I first learned, and I didn't even really consider it an art, but blending story and song because the Bluebird is known for not just the songwriters who perform there, but the stories that they tell about how the songs came to be. And I learned pretty quickly that I write good songs, but if you're going to make it in Nashville, you have to write great songs. Yeah. And so one night at a performance at the Bluebird, I pulled out a funny song that I had written and all songwriters have a funny song. Sure. And it's usually written when they're hanging out, drinking beer with buddies. And But I pulled out a song and everybody laughed. And I remember thinking, wow, that felt good. Yeah. And so the next time we performed there, I played another funny song because we would play a format called a writer's round where you had four songwriters sitting in a circle and the crowd was gathered around us. And so we would just take turns performing a song. And so after a while, I realized, okay, this is kind of where I stand out. And so I became known as the funny song guy. And so I've told this story many times, but after a performance one evening at the Bluebird, a guy approached me and he said he was with the Tennessee Farm Bureau. I had no idea what that was. Yeah. They were having a meeting the next month in Nashville and he asked if I would come and perform. At the time, yeah, I played for free. We didn't talk about fee. And so I was just glad to, to, to be invited. So I put together 45 minutes of funny songs and stories and I went and performed. And afterwards he came up to me and he said, Patrick, man, we enjoyed that speech. And I'm thinking speech. <laughs> what are you talking about? My dad's a speaker. I'm a songwriter. Right, right. He handed me a check for $500. Yeah. 
And I said, I'm glad you enjoyed that speech. <laughs> and so it was at that moment I realized, okay, maybe I could take what I love to do, which is entertain, perform, sure. and, and start to transition into the meetings industry because I already knew such a beast existed. Right. And so I started marketing myself to that type of client. And at the time, it was just entertainment. But I started creating content around customer experience. And then speaking at high schools, as you know, for the Making It Count organization, gave over a thousand speeches and learned how to give a speech in, in a very challenging environment. Yeah. I said that the best speakers tend to come out of two places, high schools or comedy clubs. Yeah. Because both audiences want you to fail for entertainment value. <laughs> right. This is true. This is true. We were comparing some war stories before we started recording here. And that's that's actually where, uh, like you said, we crossed paths uh, maybe a decade or so ago as we were yeah. trying to just trying to figure it out and being thrown to the wolves and some that went well and some not so well. Trying to avoid a real job. Exactly. Exactly. We, we managed to do that. Okay. So you do that first gig for $500. It sounds like at that point, you didn't necessarily want to be considered as a speaker. You wanted to be considered as a musician. And, oh, whoops, by the way, I, I did a little bit of speaking on the side. At what point did you feel like you needed to make the shift? Or have you felt like you needed to make the shift as, I'm a speaker who happens to do music? I, like I, There's times where I talk with, like you mentioned, the, the comedians who come out of the comedy world. I said there's a huge, huge difference in being a speaker who happens to be funny versus a organization who hires a comedian who happens to bring in some content. They get paid and perceived very, very differently. Did you find the, the same thing for you with music? Yes. I always like to say when people, they, they call me a comedian. And I said, no, 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 I'm not a comedian. I'm a humorist. And they say, well, what's the difference? And I always say one decimal point to the right. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, like you said, a humorist is basically, we have a, a message, a point. You know, we say things in, in a funny way rather than just tell jokes. But the point for me to answer your question, it's a good question. When did I basically decide, hey, my path is that of a speaker? couple things. I was living in Nashville, and obviously there's a shelf life. Not necessarily age, but eventually people grow tired of, of being aspiring I mean, I had a, a writing contract and all that, but I wasn't getting those huge hits that I was trying to get. And and the speaking was starting to develop and grow. And so I was doing both. But when I got married or met my wife and left Nashville, that's when I pulled the trigger and said, okay, I, I'm dedicating everything to a speaking career, which incidentally is when I started having success as a musician because when I left Nashville, I moved to North Carolina and decided to put together a comedy album, uh, a humor album. But actually, this was just straight funny songs and stories, yeah. no message. But I put together a room and, and, and did a recording. And then Sirius XM Radio was just coming online. And, and so I started sending material to Sirius XM Radio. And I kept sending gifts with it. And <laughs> I finally said, hey, listen, I'm um, sending a note saying, I'm going to keep sending this album until we both agree that I belong on Sirius XM radio. And the programmer at the time sent me an email back saying, ha ha ha, you're on. And so I got on Sirius XM radio on what at the time was blue collar comedy and family comedy. And it's hilarious. People tell me all the time, Oh, I hear you on the radio. And I said, well, I guess I had to leave Nashville to get on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's a constant evolution for me because you know, for a long time, I was incorporating music and, 
and funny songs into my speech. And it, it really didn't feel connected for a few years. I felt like I was giving two performances. I was doing a, a show and a speech and I was ping ponging back and forth. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I got coaching from a guy named Lou Heckler mm-hmm. that things really changed for me because one thing I did was I said, Lou, I don't need you to help me write material. I've got material. I need you to help me create a product. Right. A flow. Right. And so we, I spent a couple of days with him and we just carved out material. And I said, no, 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 that's funny. He said, it is funny. It doesn't support your premise. Yeah. Because I, I think, and, and I'm a little old school, I believe that every speech, regardless of niche, every speech is a performance whether you're in sales, whether you're in customer service, HR, it's a performance. And so it just happens that our performance supports a premise. And so we carved the material away and we created a really tight keynote speech. But as a result of that, I had about 45 minutes worth of material that I now use. If a client hires me, sometimes they'll hire me for a keynote and then I'll also do a show. Okay. And so it really opened up some doors for me, but it really also positioned me better as a speaker. Do you feel like if you hadn't made that change, if you wanted to continue to pigeonhole yourself as a, either as a a comedian or as a musician, that your career wouldn't have taken off in the way that it has? Yes. I mean, there's a huge difference. Like in in the conference world, like you said, the person that's being paid as the keynote versus the person that's being paid as the cocktail hour entertainment are paid very, very different and perceived very, very different. And you could do both. Absolutely. Because I'm not a celebrity. You know, as a musician, you're either selling tickets or selling beer. As a speaker, I'm I'm selling beer. You know, people are coming anyway. And so what I discovered is that meeting planners, and I've served as a meeting planner in a number of capacities, they're looking for those takeaways. They're looking for that content. That I think that's why we're hired. Now, honestly, when I start speaking and they see their group laughing and having a good time, they wipe their brow, breathe a sigh of relief and say, okay. But I think as speakers, we have to have a premise. My mind is if you can't create an emotional connection with your customer, you're going to lose them. Everything I do in my speech supports that premise. I'm hired as a speaker, I'm hired to show how to deliver extraordinary customer service. Now, I do wear another hat. I'm often hired to simply entertain, and I enjoy doing that. I'm getting ready to speak in Nashville in a couple of weeks, to, and they want an after-dinner program that's heavy on entertainment. But I think as a speaker, to establish your brand, you really have to, people have to walk away reciting your premise, you know, what you're all about, not just he was funny. Right, 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 right. So what did you do then to early on to make that transition, not only in, in your own eyes, but also in the eyes of, of other people, other event planners, potentially other speakers who thought, well, Patrick's good, but he's just, he plays the guitar and he tells some, some jokes and that's what people have seen you as. How did you begin to make that change? Was that in terms of website or just how you talked about it or anything that you did consciously to move away from, hey, I'm more than just a guy who can play a guitar and sing a pretty song? Right. Well, there are a couple of things. I think organically, if you're doing it right, you're becoming better every year. But I think that as speakers, we're known for our stories, at least the the keynote speakers that that I really admire. I I can point to a story that every one of them tell that they're kind of known for. 
But what I've discovered is, and obviously my, my website's gotten better, my videos have gotten better, all those supporting materials do a great job of positioning you as a high dollar speaker. Of course, we may differ on what high dollar is, but keep in mind, we both started at $150 speeches. <laughs> that so, we did. You know, if they let me sit up front and eat, that's high dollar. <laughs> but honestly, what really, I think, starts to establish you as a premium speaker are the audiences you speak to. When you start getting into those bigger rooms, those bigger uh, associations or corporate clients, there's a perception that surrounds that, that helps with positioning. I remember I spoke for the IMEX conference in Las Vegas, and I mean, there's 20,000 people there or 10,000 people at that one, but now I didn't speak to 10,000. I spoke to a group within that, but my name is all over the promotional materials leading up to it. Right. I got booked ahead before I even spoke because of that. And so there's a perception that goes simply along with associating with those top tier clients. Yeah. And so, you know, if I was a giving advice to a speaker and, you know, we always get advice from people who are trying to establish themselves in this business is get in front of those audiences. Well, how do I do that? I don't know. Speak. If you want to speak more, speak more. And eventually your reputation will hopefully um, put you in, into that position. I've done strategic speaking for free to get in front of the right audiences that have turned into some of those bigger engagements. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to go back for a second. So you did that gig at the Bluebird. That leads to the Farm Bureau thing. So two questions out of that. One is, do you think had you not done all those previous free gigs or low fee gigs or a couple hundred dollar gigs that you would have been as prepared whenever you get up at the Bluebird so that when someone sees you that they're going, yes, that's awesome. We need to have you come. Do you feel like that that work helped you to establish your just really your, your stage presence and your stage skills. Cause I mean, we, like we both know, like your, your best marketing is showing up and killing it. So you can't just show up and kill it on your first time for the most part. So it sounds like you had, you had at that point, a lot of at bats under your belt by the time you got up there that you were able to crush it in front of the right people. Without question. Now keep in mind the bluebird wasn't the launching point. I mean, I was still very inexperienced as a speaker at that point. The Farm Bureau folks, I mean, I think that they wanted a Nashville experience at their meeting, but those thousand high school presentations that I delivered without question, you know, I I feel like I got paid to go to speaker school. Yeah. Uh, My dad used to tell people, and it's funny because people would always call him and say, I want to be a speaker. And he'd always say, come on down to Auburn, Alabama. And he'd sit with them half a day, a full day and talk to them didn't charge him for their first time and which I love, but he would always give him the same advice. He'd say one, do a hundred speeches for free before you charge a penny and two, join an essay. And it's mainly the NSA component was he's basically saying, get around other speakers. But the hundred speeches realize some people will, will find controversy in that, but two things will happen. One after a hundred speeches, you'll finally have gone through all of the pitfalls and experiences of delivering a speech that will enable you to the talent level to deliver a paid speech. And I think by after a hundred speeches, you're worth it. Now I didn't deliver a hundred free speeches. I delivered a thousand speeches for $150. Right, right. 
But regardless, it's that experience that really enables you. And that's what kills me about a lot of celebrity speakers. Now, there are some celebrity speakers out there that are really great. Yeah. I'm not talking about necessarily the business celebrity speakers, but I'm talking about bringing a celebrity into your meeting because it's great to see so-and-so up on that stage that you see on television, but I'm not paying money for a question and answer session. Right, right. But you get a professional speaker who really has gone through the trenches of learning how to deliver their content in a, in a meaningful, entertaining, insightful way. That's where real value comes from. Yeah, absolutely. So the other thing I was wondering about is you, you do that, that gig at the Bluebird, which again, like you kind of alluded to, it's not like that venue is set up for people who are, I'm looking to hire speakers. So therefore I'm going to go to the Bluebird. It happened to be, like you said, you're right place, right time, right person in the audience sees you, which happens a lot for speakers that you get bookings just because some random person or someone's relative was in the audience. They saw you and they referred you. I got, I talked to a potential client yesterday who saw me speak seven years ago at some random event. And he said, I just, I just remembered you, you know? So I'm curious then, what did you do at that point to go from random dude in the audience sees me and it leads to a gig to really starting to continually book gigs. And I think that's where a lot of people have a tough time is, yeah, I've booked a few things here and there because the right person saw me or I knew someone or someone threw me a favor. But going from that to consistently booking 20, 30, 40 gigs a year is just really, really tough. And so the idea of just sitting back and waiting for the phone to ring just doesn't work. So what, what did you do from that point to go from, uh, was there anything like proactively that you were doing to get gigs early on? Well, let me answer that in two ways. The answer is no, not at that time, because I had an opportunity to speak for a company that, that you're very familiar with, Making It Count, that put me in high schools. Mm -hmm. And so very low pay, but lots of speeches. Yep. And so, and honestly, it was a bit of a safe space because I knew that as a 28-year-old, I would appeal to, to high school kids. It was you know, I didn't have the confidence to necessarily go in front of an adult audience unless I was just doing music and, and story and, right. you know, flat material. My confidence for the adult world didn't come for years because I just didn't feel like I had anything to say. Yeah. A lot of that came when I became the same age as, as much of my audience, then the, the confidence came to um, answer your question. And I think the way that would benefit your listeners is I'm very proactive now with how I get my speeches. Like you said, the best way to, to get a speech is to do great on stage. Somebody sees you. Right. I want to speak to that in a second. But one way that I'm proactive is that I still cold call. My least favorite color is white. And that's because when I see white space on the calendar, I panic. It means there's not a book in there. And so I go through periods where I look at the calendar and say, uh-oh, I'm going to need to work in the next eight months. Right. And so... I'll make a hit list of clients I want to speak to and I'll start, start touching them. I'll pick up the phone, I'll call. And I know that that, that goes against everything that, that great salespeople say. They say cold calling is the best, oh, the, the worst thing you can do. But I've found that although the numbers aren't huge, it is reliable. I'll give you an example. Just two weeks ago, I made a list of, associations that I wanted to speak to. It was all in the same industry in financial services. And I started picking up the phone and calling. And I got one client on the phone and she said, I cannot believe you're calling me right now. I was just sending an email out to my team saying that we need to start looking for our speakers yeah. for, for the spring. And it was just a timing thing and it worked and I booked it. And 
And it just reaffirms that as a beginning speaker, you have to get gigs. And so Patricia Fripp, do you know Patricia? Mm -hmm. Yeah. She told me one time, she said, Patrick, if you do a great job from the stage, you should spend one, maybe two speeches off of it. And so and that was very telling to me because I realized if that's the case, I only have to get five or 10 speeches on my own before it starts to feed itself. And it's true. And so then at one point I had to look, I said, okay, I'm not spinning one or two speeches off of everyone I do. So I had to look, to look inward and say, okay, what am I delivering that could be better? Yeah. Larry Wingett said, if you're not getting booked, two reasons. One, you're not asking enough people to buy or two, you're not as good as you think you are. And so it's a combination of bettering your product and asking more people to buy. Now, let me add another part to that answer. There's a woman named Connie Podesta, who I admire very much. And she has a career that, that, that I admire. And so I asked her one time, I said, tell me about your marketing strategy. And she said, what marketing strategy? I said, okay, back up. Where do you get your speeches from, Connie? And she said, well, let me ask you, how are you seeding your presentation? I said, what do you mean? She goes, throughout your speech, you need to let them know that you're available to be hired. And I take it, you let them know in a a very non-intrusive way. And so she goes, what's your next speech? And I think I was speaking for a there's a group in Charleston that they're accountants and um, comptrollers for resorts. And so I looked at my speech and I created three opportunities to see the presentation. And, you know, and I'd say something like, for example, when I speak to specific hotel chains, I always hear from the staff that blah, blah, blah. Well, I just let them know that, hey, they can hire me. I had four people come up to me after the speech and say, we want you to come to our property. Yeah. Not all of them could afford me, but still, it was proof positive that seeing the presentation works. So a combination of cold calling, and but mostly doing a great job on stage. Yeah. And I think the, the point being there that I think sometimes there's this misconception from the outside looking in for speakers, especially speakers who are still trying to get traction and get momentum, is that if you build it, they will come. You do a talk or two, you put up a website and you just sit back and wait for the phone to ring. But even like you said, you've been at this for what, 10, 15 years. And as recently as, you know, like you said, a a couple weeks ago, you're still having to pick up the phone from time to time. And this isn't exclusive to just you. Most speakers I know that I talk to, you know, either in this format or even even just sitting around casually, hey, what's working for you? And most of them still say, I still call, I still send emails and it's a lot of work, but it does work. And so, yeah, there's certainly going to be the celebrity speakers who just sit back and the, and the, the invitations come and they don't have to do much. But for most speakers, it's still a process. It's still a grind and it's still a, a very much a relationship and very much a momentum game. Without question. And also keep in mind that celebrity speaker, there's a life cycle on that, I mean, our shelf life, because it seems to me like... A lot of these big meetings, big association meetings, you, you start looking, going through and looking at who they're hi- having. One year, they're all having this guy. Next year, they're all having this, this woman. And, and it seems like they run through that. And, and once those bureaus who book them, because that's all bureau work, mm-hmm. once those bureaus book them, they go on to the next one. Yeah. And so it seems to me that there's a, there's got to be, a, there, there's a shelf life there, but I would rather be, a very high paid non-celebrity speaker. Hey. I, think, I think there's a long, there's a longer career in it. Do you do much work with bureaus today? 
You know, it's interesting. I've got a handful of bureaus and I just got invited to do a showcase with a bureau that I'm going to do. Traditionally, the bureaus that I've worked with have all been friends. You know, people that I've met in the industry and um, I've never actively marketed to bureaus. You know, I love bureaus, but I love the bureaus I trust. Sure. I mean, we all know. I mean, here's my philosophy on bureaus. If you're going to work with bureaus, err on the side of the bureau. You know, for example, we all have a story where we get a call from a bureau and we know, we know, we know that they found us online and, and they happened to click the bureau's website. Yep. Yep. Well, good for them. Yep. They get the commission. Don't screw the bureaus. I mean, if you're going to work with them, don't screw them. Some people choose not to work with them because that's a big chunk of, of the paycheck. Yep. But I like to work with bureaus that, um, that really like me and that are fans of mine, so to speak. But there's also a shelf life of bureaus. I mean, you're going to run through their clients eventually. So right. I would say if you're looking at a pie, your bureaus are a slice of the pie. Your outbound marketing is, is a slice of the pie. Your speaking engagements, you know, referrals. But also there's one slice that I found to be the most valuable, and that's my speaking network. Yeah. Other speakers. I get a ton of work from other speakers, and I recommend a ton of speakers. And the reason is it's not just a warm lead. I mean, it's a smoking hot lead. Mm-hmm. And and I'm a part of a, of a mastermind group called the Keynoters. And there are five of us and we have monthly calls. We get together twice a year. There's usually a lot of wine involved in those meetings, but we refer each other. Yeah. And if one refers me, if a speaker refers me, they've just created an emotional debt that I've got to fill. Sure. I'm referring them. And that's why it's important for speakers to be around other speakers. I'm a big fan and advocate for NSA. Every good thing that's happened to me in the speaking business has been a result of a relationship that I've created through the National Speakers Association. But there are a lot of other speaking groups that have arisen, and I think they're just as valuable. Yeah, that's, that's and you, you you took it in the direction I wanted to go in terms of just kind of wrapping up talking about how important the, and the valuable the relationships have been to you, both in a onstage way in terms of business, but even just offstage. Because the reality is being a speaker is very lonely. It's very isolating. It can be, there's days where you just feel on top of the world and I got a standing ovation in front of a huge audience and I killed it. And days where you're just like, I suck at this. What the heck am I doing? You know, and everything in between. So I'm curious then one thing I hear a lot from speakers is, okay, I outside looking in, I recognize the value of building relationships with other speakers for everything we just discussed, but you know, especially on the potential for leads and exchanging leads and referrals. But I'm having a difficult time like cracking into some of those groups or cracking in with other speakers. So any advice for other speakers who are going, I know I need to network with other speakers. I'm just having a difficult time knowing how to do that or, or what's the best way to go about doing that. So for example, with your group, you know, the, the group that you, you kind of network with, your mastermind there, how did that kind of come to be? How did some of those relationships form? My guess is this is not like an overnight thing, but this is years in the making. But can you give us any insights or, or thoughts on that? Absolutely. Well, it goes back to, to NSA. We all met through NSA and we all got to be friends. And, and then it happened organically. Well, one thing that also, there are three people in the group who are entertaining speakers as far as I'm a humorist. I mean, they're all funny, but one of them, John Petz, he, he does a lot of magic in his performance. Judson Lapley is, is. He dances. 
Evolution of Dance. I mean, he's the first YouTube celebrity, so he's very entertaining. So it's very easy for us to recommend one another. But also we have a couple of women, Neen James and Stacey Hunky, who are brilliant speakers, but they're also, they're one female, because sometimes clients, they're looking for female speakers, but also they, they have really just brilliant content. Yeah. And so uh, it's easy for us to find a place. Uh, a lot of times we will get at this, speak at the same convention because one of them will say, okay, you need to look at this person for your closing keynote. We all did Sherm, the, the, their, one of their national meetings. All of us came in and did breakout sessions, and we spun a ton of work off of that. Yeah. But to answer your question, how do you get in? You can't force that. I mean, it's not something you can call somebody and say, hey, I'm starting a mastermind group, you know, and then nice to meet you. But the best way that I've found to make those relationships happen is provide value for them. Recommend them. Yeah. If, if there's somebody you, you want to get to know better, recommend them for a speech. Or if you want to get in with a bureau, I've never done this, but I've heard of people who do it. <laughs> if you want to get in with a bureau, you book a speech, call the bureau and say, listen, I'm going to give you the commission on this. I want you to administer this contract. And I want to use this as an opportunity for you to get to know me as a resource. And I tell you, what bureau is going to say no to that? Yeah. Just make sure they're quality. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, hang out with us, share some of your wisdom and insights. If people want to find out more about you, I know we mentioned your domain at the top there, but where can we go? PatrickHenrySpeaker.com. <laughs> I was going to say Speaks or PatrickHenrySpeaks.com. Just throw them all out there. They all go to the same throw place. All, out there. all right, brother. Thanks for the time, man. Appreciate you. Uh, thank you. That was fun. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Patrick Henry of PatrickHenrySpeaker.com. Again, check out his work over at PatrickHenrySpeaker.com. Hey, like I mentioned to you at the top of the show, make sure you uh, check out FreeSpeakerWorkshop.com, FreeSpeakerWorkshop.com. If you're looking for a step-by-step system on how to find and book paid speaking engagements, make sure you check that out. All right, my friends, that wraps up today's episode. We will catch you next time. You're awesome.